invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. I'll read for us verses 3 and 4. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you in the pew, if you're uh, sitting upstairs or uh, in one of the chairs, if you're sitting down on the floor, uh, then you'll find our passage on page 1021. 1021. 1 John chapter 1. And uh, just going to read two verses to begin with. And then this morning, actually, we're going to be jumping around 1 John a lot and looking at a number of different verses, okay? I'll start here. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, Verse 4, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to wrap up a seven-week series in the letter of 1 John. And as I've stated, I think just about every week, we entitled this series that you may know because the letter of 1 John is a letter about Christian assurance. Assurance that we know God, that we are His, and that He is ours. And that we have eternal life, that we possess eternal life with God forever, that we will be with Him forever. And so the letter of 1 John is a letter about Christian assurance. And John states that very clearly in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. So this is near the end of the letter. John states very clearly why he is writing this letter. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, so that you would know that you would be confident that you know God and that you will be with Him forever. This is what I mean by Christian assurance. This is the reason why John is writing this letter. But then notice as well in the verses that we just read here, at the same time, John says he's writing for another purpose. He says in chapter 1, verse 4, and we are writing these things so that Here, it could be either translated our joy or it could be translated your joy. I don't think we need to make a sharp distinction between the two. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So here, John says at the beginning of his letter that he's writing this letter for the sake of joy. And so, you're being critical of John. You might say, well, what is it, John? Are you writing for joy? Are you writing for Christian assurance? And of course, in John's mind, the two are are no different, right? So that it is through the experience of Christian assurance that the believer experiences joy. Christian assurance is the means by which the Christian experiences and walks in joy. So, if there's no assurance... There's no joy. If there's assurance, then that should result in joy. And isn't it a wonderful thing that John begins this letter by saying, I'm writing these things for the sake of joy. I mean, let me ask you this morning, do you want joy? Do you want joy in your life? I do. 
Do you feel that you need joy? You know that one of the fruits of the Spirit is love and joy, right? Do you want joy? Do you need joy? It is so easy for us, even though one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy, even though John is writing for the sake of joy, it is so easy for us to be mired down in in the disappointments of life, with our own anxieties and fears, with various discouragements. But John says right out of the gate here as he writes this letter in 1 John that he is writing for the sake of our joy. He is writing for the sake of increasing our joy. And therefore, I want to suggest to you, as John begins this letter by saying he's writing for the sake of joy, I want to suggest to you that 1 John, the letter of 1 John, is a treasure chest of joy. It is a treasure chest of joy. John has filled this letter with truths and promises for the sake of our joy. And so this morning, what I want us to do is to dig into 1 John and to discover to discover the joy that John wants us to experience through the reality of Christian assurance. There are more than we can uh, mention this morning for the sake of time, but I want to highlight four treasures of joy from the letter of 1 John. And the first is this. The joy of sins forgiven. The joy of sins forgiven. Now, guilt and shame, we know, often rob Christians of their joy. It's one of the reasons why the Scriptures identify Satan as the great accuser. Because Satan seeks to rob us of our joy by placing us in a state of perpetual guilt and shame. But here's the challenge. This is Satan's end that we would feel constant guilt and shame. And here's the problem. We are sinners. Everyone's a sinner and sin results in guilt and shame. So naturally we find ourselves experiencing guilt and shame and Satan is going to make the most of that for his sake and take advantage of that and place us in a state where that's all we can kind of experience or feel or sense. And oftentimes it's, a, it's just a steady unconscious stream in our lives that, that, that we're not even moment by moment consciously aware of but affects our state our mood, our perspective on everything. Even the most stubborn unbeliever must reckon with guilt and shame. And humanity has devised many strategies to do so. So even the most stubborn unbeliever has to deal with this reality of the guilt, the shame that he or she knows what is right but does not do it. And so there are any number of strategies that have that we have created. One is to redefine sin, right? So we're engaging in an activity that we know is sin, but we redefine it in order to assuage our consciences. Or maybe it's to deny the reality of sin altogether. Well, that's just something that religious people have made up, but there's this aching sense within our soul that we know that's not true. Or some people create a merit system by which they 
reason to themselves, well, if I can do more good than more than evil, then, then I can outweigh the balances and surely that'll quiet my conscience. But all these remedies fall short. Because, as the Bible teaches us, we are real sinners and we experience real guilt and real shame. And the only solution to this dilemma is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we read in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, look there, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we read these words, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, several weeks ago, we looked at this passage, and you might remember that one of the points I made was to point out that Jesus here in this passage is identified as our advocate. Chapter 2, verse 1, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And of course, that term advocate is a legal term. It refers to, a, to, to someone who's speaking in defense of another. And so in this scenario, if we were to think of a courtroom situation, we are the defendants. Jesus is the defense attorney. But the problem is that we are guilty and the evidence is overwhelming. The prosecutor is Satan and he is appealing to the law and he appeals to the law over and over and over again to point out and to show where we violated the law and where we are worthy of condemnation. And so what does Jesus, our defense attorney, our advocate do? We have all learned by watching courtroom dramas on TV and keeping up with high-profile legal cases that there are some defense lawyers who will do anything to get their clients off. They will cheat, they will lie, they will deceive, they will find loopholes within the law, whatever it takes. But what we see here in our text is that Jesus is not an advocate like that because Jesus is, as John says here, the righteous. And so Jesus enters the courtroom and Jesus does not, he does not deny the charges, but rather Jesus declares that we, his clients, are guilty. He says, yes, guilty as charged. He affirms all the damning evidence that is presented against us. But then Jesus reminds the judge, God the Father, of the sacrifice that he made for us at the cross. This is what verse 2 is referring to when it speaks of the propitiation of sins. Propitiation simply means an atoning sacrifice that appeases or satisfies the wrath of another. And Jesus appeals to his sacrifice at the cross that he died in the place of sinners, that he paid our penalty, that he took our judgment, that he served our sentence, that he suffered the wrath that we deserved in our place. Jesus offers his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead as exhibit A. And having presented that evidence, he requests that there be an immediate dismissal of trial. And the Father graciously and joyfully grants it. Sins forgiven. Completely, in full, innocent. Pardoned. It is on 
the basis of this redemptive work that Jesus did at the cross that then God offers us this promise in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Look there in the text. We read these words. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, here it is, from all unrighteousness. Now let that word just fall upon you for a moment. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not some unrighteousness. Not most unrighteousness. Not all unrighteousness, but the really, really bad ones. But all unrighteousness. In fact, my friends, if we understand the significance, the severity, the depth of our own sin and rebellion against God, it almost seems too good to be true. And yet Jesus paid the ultimate price. He sacrificed everything at the cross so that he could declare this good news to us. All your sins, all your unrighteousness will be forgiven. And what that means is no more guilt, no more shame, but forgiven in full. We get this sense that the hymn writer is staggered in amazement by this reality when he writes, Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, right? All of it is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. There's joy, right? Praise the Lord, O my soul. Christian assurance, the assurance of sins forgiven is a treasure of joy. It is the source of our joy in Christ. The second treasure is this. Not only the joy of sins forgiven, but the joy of knowing God. The joy of knowing God. You'll remember that uh, as John writes this letter, there are false teachers who were troubling the church. And the false teachers were teaching some form of Gnosticism. And Gnostic simply means uh, to know. And so the Gnostics were claiming to be the knowing ones. And so John writes the church here to say that although the Gnostics are claiming this superior, mysterious knowledge that somehow connects them with God. I want you to know, church, that they are not the knowing ones, but in fact, you are the knowing ones because you know God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And John says that their knowledge of God, the church's knowledge of God, is not merely intellectual or academic, but rather it is personal and it is relational. And John uses... Some of the most intimate language to describe the Christian's knowledge of God. We'll see this in a number of places in this letter. So he uses the language of covenant. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 23, and we read these words. John says here, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now that's, that's beautiful. L listen to that language. Whoever confesses the Son, so if you believe in Jesus, then you have the Father. You, you possess Him. He is your. I mean, it's almost like some people might, might step back from that and say, that, that almost sounds blasphemous. You have Him. You possess Him. He is yours. You see, this is the language of covenant. 
It's the language of marriage. So sometimes after the service, I'll meet someone and they'll say, they'll say, oh, I, I met I met Nikki just a few moments ago. Is she your wife? And I'll say, yeah, she's mine. Right? That's the language of covenant. That's the language of marriage. And she could say the same of me. Yeah, he's mine. I belong to her and she belongs to me. And listen, in the gospel, this is what happened. When God saved you, he claimed you to be his own. He betrothed himself to you. And in committing himself to you, he said, you are mine and... Now I am yours. Forever united together in covenant with one another. We know God through covenant. We're bound to Him. Not only does He use the language of covenant, but He uses the language of union to describe the Christian's knowledge of God. Look at the very next verse. 1 John chapter 2, verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. This reminds us of the language of John chapter 15 where Jesus talks about the vine and the branches, that Jesus is the vine and we are the branches, that we abide in Him and He abides in us and as we do so, we will bear much fruit. And again, could could John use any more intimate language that you are in him and he is in you? There's this spiritual organic union between the Christian and God. So he uses the language of covenant. He uses the language of union. He also uses the language of family to describe the Christian's knowledge of God. Look at this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. And here John himself is taken by this reality. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. It's almost too good to be true, John says, and so we are. It's real. You remember last week we were, we were talking about the reality of being born again, that a Christian is one who's been born again by the Spirit of God. And John's pointing to that reality here that those who have been born by the Spirit of God are birthed into the family of God and we have been declared the sons and the daughters of God. And to know God this way is to know that God loves us. This is one of the grand themes of all of John's writings. To know God this way is to know that He loves us. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. He says, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. Or skip ahead to John chapter, 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. We see this theme again. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Or skip down a few more verses in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, and we read these words. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. This is one of the great themes in all of John's writings. It was John himself who wrote the most famous verse in all of Scripture, right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. 
John wants us to know that to know God is to know His love for us. And John wants us to know that He loves us. He loves us. He loves, he loves us more than we can imagine. He loved us unto death, literally. And He will never stop loving us. And this is what we have been created for. To know God and to know that He loves us. And because He loves us, He has betrothed Himself to us in a covenant. Because He loves us, He has united Himself to us in the most intimate of unions so that we are in Him and that He is in us. Because He loves us, He welcomes us with hospitality and with love and with open arms into His family. And He declares that we are His sons and His daughters. And all of this is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. And listen, my friends, John wants you to know this. It's all yours for the sake of your joy. It's all yours so that you would be happy in God. Because He loves you with an undying love. The joy of sins forgiven. The joy of knowing God and His love. The joy, third, is the third treasure. The joy of victory. According to the Scriptures, the Christian has at least three enemies. The three enemies that we face in this life are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And John declares in this short letter that in Christ the Christian has victory over all three. So first of all, the world. The world, we learn from the Scriptures the way that it's used in this, in this um, setting is a system or a structure that is set in opposition against God. So in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, John declares there that the world is synonymous with the desires of the flesh, or some of your translations may say the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so these forces are set in opposition against God. And at one time, we all were aligned with these forces. We all were aligned with the world. And even now, if you are a Christian, these forces threaten to steal your heart so that once again you would align yourself against God in, your, in pursuit of your own sinful desires. But John declares here, he describes the world as the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. But John also states in this letter that the Christian, through faith in Jesus, has victory over the world. So turn to 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, and we read these words. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So this system, this structure that has set itself against God, we were in it, but we have been plucked out of it and we have been given victory over it. Not only that, but we have been granted victory over the flesh and the devil. So the flesh is our sinful nature. 
before God comes and visits our own hearts and lives and grants us the new birth, before He changes our hearts and redeems us, we are enslaved to our flesh. We are enslaved to our sinful nature. It's the prevailing force in our lives. We are under its sway. And listen, my friends, we don't naturally think this way, but what the Scriptures teach us is that those who find themselves aligned with this world system, enslaved to the passions and lust of their flesh and their sinful nature, that they find themselves under the influence and the domain of Satan himself. The one whom Jesus described in the Gospel of John is the one who comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But John declares to us in this letter that the one who has been born again has been delivered from the dominating and oppressive power of sin and has been set free from the evil one. So turn to 1 John chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. John says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. There's the idea. If you're enslaved to the lust of your flesh, you are under the sway of the evil one. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So, delivered from the power. It doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean we don't ever sin, but delivered from the, the dominion of sin, the power of sin. That power has been broken in our lives so that we begin to walk in a new way and delivered from the power and dominion of Satan. And then if you turn to 1 John chapter 5, verse 18, the same point is made here. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, that is Jesus, protects him and the evil one does not touch him. So you see here that the, th the three enemies of the people of God in this world are the world, the flesh, and the devil. John addresses every single one and says, victory, victory, victory. The Christian has victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, does this mean that as Christians, we do not battle or feel the effects of the world and the flesh and the devil? Well, of course we feel the effects, and of course we still battle in this world. But the Christian wages war knowing that the ultimate victory has already been won. Some have likened this, the Christian's life in this world, to living our lives between D-Day and V-Day. So do you know what D-Day is? D-Day was the uh, day in World War II in which the Allied forces led by American troops stormed the beaches of Normandy and won a significant and decisive victory over Hitler and Germany. And at that point, D-Day did not mark the end of the war. The war continued on, but D-Day did mark a decisive turning point in the war. It was it, when, when the Allied forces won that battle, the war turned, and it was just a matter of time before Hitler and Germany would be defeated. 
And it's similar for us as Christians. And our D-Day is the first coming of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus, by his life and by his death and by his resurrection, he won a decisive victory over Satan and over the world and the flesh and the devil. And now we are to live in that victory. We engage in battle, but we engage in battle knowing that the victory has already been won and we await the day when Satan will finally surrender and be banished forever. And John says that as Christians, he wants us to know that the victory is ours. And because the victory is ours, we should live like it. We should resist and oppose the sinful structures of this world as though they have already been defeated because they have been. We should wage war against our sinful flesh with confidence, trusting that the power and the dominion of sin in our lives has been broken because it has. We should resist Satan and rescue others from his grip, knowing that he is a defeated foe and that his time is short because it is true. The Christian's life in this world is oftentimes a life of struggle, but John wants us to know that it is a victorious struggle because Christ is our victor and therefore we should fight with joy. Fourth and finally, the fourth treasure is the joy of eternal life. The joy of eternal life. So the joy of sins forgiven, the joy of knowing God, the joy of victory, and then finally the joy of eternal life. We know that everything in this world will eventually wear out and cease to exist. I was listening to a podcast where someone was interviewing Elon Musk and... Uh, Elon Musk, if you don't know who he is, he's the brilliant inventor and businessman who's responsible for so many of the uh, advances in electric cars and modern advances in space travel. And as he was being interviewed in this podcast, he, uh, he started philosophizing about the world and the end of the world. And uh, at one point in the interview, he said, you know, eventually the sun will burn out. And so at some point the human race will cease to exist and this world as we know it will be extinct. And Musk is actually just acknowledging there scientifically, if thinking about the physical world, he's just acknowledging what we already know to be true. That everything in this physical universe will eventually succumb to decay and corruption and will ultimately die and cease to exist. Even the sun with all its energy and power will not last forever. John says as much in 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, where he says, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But here's the promise of the gospel. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the world as we know it is passing away. Every, Everything in one sense is giving way to corruption and decay and will ultimately cease to exist. Whether it's your house, your car, your body, all of it will eventually decay and give way. But the promise of the gospel is eternal life. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
Or John says it this way in 1 John chapter 2, verse 25. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. And John makes it clear that we receive this eternal life through faith in Jesus. So in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, we read these words, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Jesus is God and He's life. And to be in Jesus is to know eternal life. Now, listen, something that we often fail to appreciate, though, is something that John points out in this letter and in his other writings, is that this life starts now. This eternal life is is ours now. So, in 1 John 5, verse 12, John says, Whoever has the Son, here it is, has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. He has life presently, and John makes this point in other places as well. So this is much of what we've been talking about this morning, the forgiveness of sins, knowing God and being in relationship with Him, having victory over the world and the flesh and the devil. All of these are present realities for us as Christians. Of course, we await their greater fulfillment and fullness But they are present realities for us. They are possessions for us now. We possess life, eternal life, now. And we wait for its greater fulfillment. So in 1 John 3, verse 2, John says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. There it is. We possess life now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. So there's waiting, there's anticipation, there's hope, there's something to come. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. There's the fulfillment and the fullness. We will be with Him, and not only will we be with Him, but we will be like Him. This is the promise of the gospel. Life, now and for all eternity. Remember that this is the whole reason why John wrote his letter. So that we who believe in Jesus might know that we have eternal life. And this knowledge results in joy. John is writing so that we might possess Christian assurance so that then we might live and walk in joy. True joy. Joy that can fulfill, joy that can fill you. Joy that can sustain you. Joy that can permeate even the sadness and the struggles and the disappointments of this life. So not, not so that you don't feel sadness or you don't feel disappointment or you don't feel grief, but so that you feel it in such a way that it, that it joy infiltrates it. So that in the midst of that sadness and grief, even then you know joy. So let me ask you, do you know that you have eternal life? You can through faith in Jesus Christ. He who has the Son has life. Believe in Him. Trust Him. And if you know that you have eternal life, are you living in the joy of that reality? You can 
Will you make it your prayer as I've made it my prayer even this week? Oh God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. We have to pray that all the time as Christians, right? Because we forget, we forget the treasures that are ours in Jesus. Pray that, ask for it. God wants you to have joy. God wants you to know joy. The joy that comes through the blessing of Christian assurance. Pray, ask for it. And then go to 1 John. Read it. It's very short. Mark every single place, everything that John says in this letter that is a cause for you to have joy. And then believe it. Pray it into your own life. Meditate on it. Cling to it as you go through your day. That we might walk in the joy that God would have for us. The joy that comes through the blessing of Christian assurance. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God who redeems and saves. Lord, we thank you that you have redeemed us and saved us so that we can have confidence that we know that we have eternal life and you have redeemed us and saved us so that we can have joy. Father, forgive us for our unbelief. Forgive us for forgetting, not remembering and clinging to the great promises that you have purchased for us through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us even today, even this week, to walk in the joy that you are offering us through Jesus. And it's in his name we pray.